Welcome to Stageworthy, a podcast about Canadian theatre and the people who make it. Hosted by me, Phil Rickaby. This is episode 307. My guest this week is Scott Emerson Moyle. One of the things I've really noticed in the last 18 months with theatres being closed is the resiliency of the theatre artist. Pretty much every artist has come up with a way that they can still make art even with venues closed. Whether that's Zoom plays, live stream productions, pre-recorded video productions, or audio dramas like my six-part production last Christmas, St. Nick and the Big F*** Up. We've all had to make changes, buying new equipment, learning how to do video online, how to produce online, and what promoting an online production even looks like. So many changes to make things happen in this very strange time. Which is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to Scott Emerson Moyle. Scott is one of the creative brains behind the Boundless Library, a sequential adventure that you take part in, both through online resources and actual physical treasures mailed to you. The Boundless Library uses the elements of audio plays and written text and combines it with these treasures to tell an intricate story. I was able to take part in the library's first story and... I connected with the story more viscerally because of the way these pieces tied together. The Boundless Library is an ambitious project made all the more important because of the pandemic, and I highly recommend it. Scott is not only one of the creators of the Boundless Library, but he's also a director, fight choreographer, intimacy director, and performer. Here's our conversation. If it is possible for you to give the elevator pitch... For the Boundless Library, what would that be? Uh, the Boundless Library is uh, is multi-platform storytelling um, in a subscription model, um, which is that, and that description is technically correct and also mightily hecking dry. Um, <laughs> another way to describe it might be it's uh, it's sort of sort of like a, a an alternate reality game an ARG uh or in some ways sort of like an escape room uh except uh it it comes to you yeah um and that's that's sort of true as well uh, another way to put it is uh it's a it's an immersive uh narrative experience that you uh for for one or more audience members where you get to uh you get to intake it at your own pace in your own, in your own comfortable space. And, uh, and you get to build your own understanding of what, of what the story is. That is a, that is, I mean, all three of those are, are, are good explanations or explanations. And it's, it's to me having participated uh, in the last, the last week or so. um, And that's like an accelerated uh, uh, version since yeah. it takes about, it's like six mailings yeah. over six months. The story you did is a six-month experience that you crammed heroically in a week. <laughs> but here's the fun. thing. Here's the thing. It's like, oh, for me, it was a whirlwind. But I could see if you had, if you got your first mailing, you know there's a month until the next one. And there's a piece, an a, a, like a media piece a week in addition to the mailing that you're having, that you're gaining access to, you are slowly uncovering this story, piecing through all of these little treasures that you've been sent in the mail. And they're significant in amount and intricacy. So 
the team that put this thing together, your team is 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 wonderful. It's, because it's every piece is gorgeous. Everything is gorgeous. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. It's uh uh it's been a lot of a lot of the hands-on work was done by me. Um mm. there are there are four of us sort of at the core of this thing and uh you know, there's there's someone who does uh a lot of the writing and someone who does uh, all of the the editing and the sort of graphics manipulation stuff. There's someone who uh, who does all of the um, uh, all the digital structure and and sort of the business model behind the mm. scenes, you know that stuff. And then I am the point person on most of the hands on making. So uh, so and it, it's really been a blast to uh, to sort of talk through in the story meetings what what the story is going to be and then go, so what can we make and mm. how can we make it? You know, what would it look like to produce uh, a few hundred uh, wooden Ukrainian style uh, painted <laughs> eggs? Or what would it look like to, to do a mailing that has, I think there's, I think it's like 105 pieces of paper, each of which is heat damaged and water damaged. Mm, yeah. Um, and to do all that, not just to figure out to do it once the way you would do it as a theater prop, but to do it at scale. Yeah, is a real ride. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is, and it it pays off because the experience of it is. I think at first, just if I'm not going to give anything away, except to describe that at first you get this package, the first mailing, and it's full of stuff, and you start piecing through it, and you're not quite sure what any of it means, but you read it and you piece through, it, and then you listen to their first audio piece, and things start to connect between the two. And then you get the next, the next, the next piece, and then you get the next audio piece. And by the time of the month, you like, you're still not sure. It's not a complete picture, mm-hmm. but it's so intriguing and it's so um, wonderful to have this tactile um, experience of of holding the paper and and reading it and recognizing names that you've heard in the audio bits and things like that. It's just it's it's quite an experience, I have to say. Yeah, and I, I should clarify uh, that the the experience you've done is uh, the story is called a feather in dust. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the only. That's currently the only story we have available, uh, but there are several more in the pipeline, each of which are totally different in content and totally different in format. Mm. Um, it's still mm. going to be a monthly subscription model. Uh, not all of them will be six months long. In fact, the next three we're developing are each uh, three months long. Right. But um, uh, but yeah, every the idea is that every story is is different in the way it's framed and different in terms of what you what kinds of things you physically get. Mm. Uh, some stories will have uh, so a feather and dust has let's say some light puzzle elements. Mm -hmm. Um, And the main puzzle is just connecting the dots and sort of building your understanding of the story. Uh, There will be, there are stories in the pipeline that have a uh, much more intense direct puzzle element where you are, where you are solving puzzles and it feels a bit like, I don't know, missed. If you remember that video game. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And we've got stuff in the pipeline where there's, where there's no puzzle. It's simply a story that you, that you get to hold in your hands while you experience it. So there's sort of a, a range of things. And for that mm. one, we shot for a little bit of game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, could I ask what the genesis of the boundless library was? How did this, 
How did this idea start? How what? How did it come together? Tell me everything you can. Yeah, well, uh, hilariously, the story starts with I paint toy soldiers. Sometimes um, I was uh, I was contacted by a friend of a friend, a guy named Tim Sullivan, who I uh, you know I, I knew through the the board gaming circles that I'm in. Um, and we had hung out a few times. Uh, he uh, he contacted me to paint a, a custom miniature of his D&D character. And uh, when I went to drop it off, he went, do you have a minute to, to talk? Can I pitch a thing to you? And he sat down and told me about this, this idea called the Boundless Library. And uh, Tim, uh, Tim is the co-founder or was the one of the co-founders of, uh, of a company called the Mysterious Package Company. And uh, so this was this was his sort of years later, his sort of 2.0, you know, if he could reset the clock and, and try a narrative uh, mailing experience again, what would he do differently? Um, And he approached me because, (laughs) because as he put it, he went, you know, I see you, I see you doing these plays all the time. And, and I have no idea how you do that, but it, it always seems to work. Um, and of course, a lot of the theater I've done has been sort of immersive staging or, or has blurred the boundary uh, between audience and, um, and, uh, and the show. And so I think that was part of it as well. So he asked me to sort of be the, the starting creative lead on this thing. And he sort of talked about this idea of an extra dimensional library that has every story ever told, written, recorded, and every story ever conceived of but not told dreamed up but not written down which is the case for for a feather and dust um that we've got the the um you know the post-mortem works of sir terry pratchett uh for example and christopher marlowe in there um and uh and that we'd sort of be doing stories from the library but also in an ongoing way the story of the library as this as this fascinating weird magic place and uh, we from from there, there are sort of two other core co-conspirators. Joseph Beebe is our uh, he's a documentary filmmaker by trade. Um, he's he's doing all kinds of edits, all the audio and has done a bunch of the writing and is responsible for the a lot of the di- all of the digital art. Um, and uh, then Natalie Zena Walshots, who's an author, her book Hench uh, made a real splash last year. Um, Natalie uh, was the the fourth to come on board and we sort of put our heads together and went, okay, what is this? And how do we practically speaking, actually do this? This was right before the pandemic started. So we, we pre-sold a couple of things to sort of raise some capital for this Mm -hmm. thing and, uh, and get the word out there. And, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the objects that were in the, that were involved in that initial, uh, product, we're being manufactured in the States mm. uh, because some of them are quite specialized. For example, we had a, um, uh, a set of a, a medallion struck uh, for our, our cardholder kit, we called it, mm. uh, that there just aren't a lot of places that can do small runs of weird medallions. Um, <laughs> but the, the across the border manufacturing thing at the start of the pandemic became a real problem. I bet. And so all of a sudden we had to email all of our supporters and say, Hey, so we kind of can't do anything we thought we were going to do, but we're going to, we'll, we'll keep you posted. Um, and, 
and as the pandemic went on and sort of businesses figured out how they could operate remotely or how mm. they, they could return to work in limited ways, we were able to to move it through and get to get that cardholder kit shipped. Um, and, uh, and we sort of rethought a feather and dust, which was our always going to be our initial story. We, we rethought that in terms of what does it look like to make an immersive art experience that that's kind of pandemic proof, Mm. you know, um, this is where I've been putting, uh, a lot of my, all of my theater making energy Mm. over the pandemic, thinking about, you know, it is stuff in the mail and digital content and, you know, audio drama, all of that, but past a point, it's just, how do you, you know, how do you throw people into the deep end of a story and create a great experience? Uh, and the, the sort of transfer of skills from theater paid off more than I might have guessed it would. Hmm. Um, now that uh, we're, now that a feather in dust has has been out in the world and people have had uh, our initial subscribers have experienced the whole thing, we're uh, we're about to launch a Kickstarter for uh, our next uh, our next few stories hmm. um, because capital is always the challenge in uh, in this format. Well, yeah, um, and the fact that we had to do this over a much longer span of time than we thought we would mm-hmm. uh, made it much more expensive to do. <laughs> Did the pandemic is the pandemic the reason why it, it like one of the reasons that that it took longer to do? Did did it slow down the production in addition to oh, obtaining some of the stuff? Yeah, it was it was about things we were having manufactured uh, offsite took longer. Things we were having printed took longer because you know our printing partner is mm. is working at half staffing, and they've pivoted they've pivoted their entire business to uh, printing disposable menus and floor stickers for social distancing. Right so to, to pivot back to the kind of printing we needed was actually kind of like gummed up their workflow a little. Mm. Um, we, uh, you know, we knew that we were going to be uh, recording lots of content with actors and uh, the space we had pre-pandemic to record in, which was this amazing recording studio. My God, a beautiful space. Um, we just couldn't get access to anymore. Right. So we had to rethink all of the audio content for what is safe to produce in, you know, in the format we have access to. Um, we did also, um, to sort of, to sort of fill the gap and to, to produce, uh, something that would tell our audience we're still here and we're still making stuff, uh, before we could start into feather and dust, we, uh, we made a, um, a podcast called boring crimes, uh, that was, we, we thought of it as we, we, we built it by starting from the point of what do we have right now? Well, we have we have me, Scott Emerson Moyle, uh, and I have a microphone, uh, and we have we have access to a few other actors, but we can't get in the room with them. So, what's a story we can tell where we won't have to disguise that almost all of the conversations are recorded phone calls? And Instagram's free, so how might we loop in Instagram? And we wound up building this thing called Boring Crimes that. It basically starts out as uh, a mediocre white dude named Matt Comstock uh, doing a mediocre white dude true crime podcast um, and uh, <laughs> and stumbling into the Boundless Library. Mm. And it turns into sort of magic realist horror 
um, over the course of it as he realizes uh, he and his his co-conspirators find out that they are in way over their heads and that they have found something far weirder than they thought they would. Uh, so that wound up being sort of another way to to tell a story and to experiment with it. And that one was built entirely around pandemic restrictions. Right. Which was a bit of a ride. I mean, uh, I mean, so is everything. I mean, we had like one of the things we've all had to innovate. We've all had to find different ways of telling stories that we had initially thought that we would tell the stories. Yep. We've all had to learn new skills and, and, and purchase new equipment and, and, and things like that. And, and it's, Sort of to me, it's the resiliency of the theater artist that uh, people are doing it, are, are finding ways to, yeah. to still make art and still still make creative things and still put stuff out there, whether it's audio, whether it's video, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, it was real fun. Every time I needed to cast a new role in Boring Crimes, um, I would, you know, I would sort of go through my mental Rolodex and call someone up and go, Hey, do you want to do this thing? We're going to, we're <laughs> going to, I'm going to phone you using a phone recorder app. And we're going to, we're going to play the conversation over the phone uh, a few times. And then, you know, then if we need any retakes, I'll just phone you again. <laughs> um, and uh, so sort of the weirdest thing. Um, and every actor I asked about this just went, oh, my God, thank you. This is like, <laughs> it is so great to do something. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and, and that wound up being, you know, some connection that I was really, that I wouldn't have otherwise had. Yeah. You know, the, the people that I, that I consider friends, but, uh, but who I've, I've built my friendship around working with. Yeah. Um, and and, you know, that was really easy when we could always be in rehearsal or performance for something. Mm -hmm. But being able to to just call people and say, hey, it's been a while. How are you? Also, do you want to do this thing? Wound <laughs> up being um, it felt like a lifeline to me. And I hope it did for the uh, the artists I looped in. Yeah. Um, I should particularly call out. Actually, there's 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 one uh, there's one name that that uh, we couldn't have done Feather and Dust without. So Christina Bojanowski um, wrote the core story of a Feather and Dust. And I'm not, I'm not going to, you've, you've experienced Feather and Dust, so you know what object I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I, I'm not going to give it away because I want people to be able to experience it without, without sort of hitting the ending first in this mm -hmm. podcast. But uh, Christina when, when we, the, the core story of A Feather in Dust is about a uh, Ukrainian uh, refugee in the 1930s who winds up uh, in, in Canada briefly and then in, uh, in the U.S. in the Dust Bowl, where she works as a uh, seamstress with a circus. And, uh, and Christina's family is Ukrainian, and, uh, and she wound up she wound up just bringing so many of her own family's stories in in odd little ways into this. Um, and uh, again, an, an example of an artist that I've really enjoyed working with in live theater. Mm. Um, and it was just a, it was such a treat to get to, you know, to have a reason to get on zoom with her every week to, to, you know, further hash out the story treatment of this mm. thing. Um, it was, uh, and when I finally saw her for the first time in person, once, <laughs> once this thing was in, was done and in the can, um, and was able to, uh, 
to give her, to hand her a key piece of this thing. It was, Mm. and go like, look what we made. Look at what you wrote. It was really, (laughs) it's pretty wild. That's wonderful. That's awesome. That's awesome. It felt wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Speaking of theater. Yeah. um, In past years, um, you've been heavily involved with doing Shakespeare in, 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 um, Unusual locations around Toronto. I know yeah. that you don't, you're not uh, uh, leading that company anymore, but it's been a big part of, of what you've done. Uh, Shakespeare in like around the dog fountain in <laughs> Toronto's downtown or when that wasn't available, uh, I think at the gazebo at, uh, at St. James Cathedral and all kinds of other places where you've, you've sort of put Shakespeare into places that people can just sort of stumble into it, not without even realizing what they're walking into. Yeah. Um, First off, um, where did your love for Shakespeare start? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think, yeah. So so my, my mother got me this book when I was off to summer camp. She got me a book called Tales from Shakespeare, which is... Um, which on the surface appears to be short story adaptations of Shakespeare that, you know, that maybe a young reader can dig into in a way that's a little less daunting than the play. Um, what it actually is, uh, it's, it's by this brother and sister, Charles and Mary Lamb, who in the 18th century decided they were going to adapt Shakespeare for, for young, uh, younger readers, specifically mm. younger boys. There's a, there's a thing in the preface about like, this is obviously for, for young boys, but but if you have, dear reader, if you have a sister, perhaps you could select passages appropriate for uh, for a womanly ear and uh, <laughs> share with her the delight of the bard, and you know the whole like eighteenth century bardolatry tire fire produced this thing, and and it's um, the the neat thing about it, for better or for worse, is that it's not really adaptation; it's basically just Shakespeare's dialogue cut down into the length of a short story. Um, and framed with, and then he said, and then she said, and ah. then the the words laid out as as dialogue on the page, um, and uh, so so that at maybe eleven or twelve kind of kind of sparked my interest. I think because the language is so was was so unusual, um, and uh, I was fascinated with with language as a kid, um, and then I sort of got to high school and you know, every year we did a Shakespeare. And I think because I had got this head start, I, I mm. had a pretty good leg up into it. Um, and, and it's interesting to think of like, you know, that way that it's possible for, for someone like me, um, a, you know, a straight coding white guy to, to fall into Shakespeare as a, as a thing. And I definitely wasn't thinking about it for the longest time. It was just, I was constantly socially rewarded uh, for, for being, for being good at this thing and for being, for being handy at this thing and having, you know, quick access to uh, mentally to the details of this thing. Um, And, uh, and when I got out into the world and, and started, you know, working with, with working professionally, I sort of, at that point, I sort of went, Shakespeare's my thing in a, in a way that I now look at it and go, that was really ill-considered. Shakespeare wasn't <laughs> my thing. Shakespeare was, was my comfort zone. Mm. And, you know, 10, you know, it was 12 years ago when I founded that company, 12 years ago, the social rewards for being me obsessed with Shakespeare were substantial. 
And so I was producing, you know, I, I produced those first few shows uh, in, I think, pretty, pretty unconsidered ways uh, with, I mean, they, I think, you know, there, there was good in them. People enjoyed them. I, I got to, you know, I did some, some work that I learned a lot from, and I think everybody had fun working on them. But to put it bluntly, uh, if I could get into a time machine and go back 12 years ago, uh, I would sit 12 years ago, me down, and at the very least say, smarten up about the way you represent gender in your Shakespeare. Uh, mm. Smarten up about depictions of race in Shakespeare. In mm. particular, don't do your first few shows with all white casts and not think about that. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, and I, I don't like, you know, we're, we're all learning and I, I wasn't thinking about it until I started thinking about it. Uh, but it, it became in the last few years of working with Dauntless, it became more and more about how do I, how do I subvert this? How do I use the, how do I use the tools that are Shakespeare, the thing that I get for free that, you know, that, that is absolutely my lane and that nobody, uh, you know, nobody um, doubts my expertise in whether or not I, I deserve that expertise. Um, you know, I can, I can, I can be introduced. I have been introduced in context where like, this is Scott, he's a Shakespeare expert and no one ever goes, you know, but is he, or we'll uh, prove it or, yeah, you know, yeah. um, what's, what's Hamlet's inseam? Um, none of that. Right. And so it, it became about how can I use that thing I apparently get for free to crack it as wide open as possible. Um, which is ultimately why I know you just asked me about where it started. And then I told you the whole arc. Uh, but, but that's ultimately why I was really interested in passing Dauntless along to, to new artistic direction because I wanted to, I wanted to see what, what not me made of it because, you know, there's, there's just, there's enough Shakespeare being made by white dudes who grew up being told that they were, that they were Shakespeare ex experts and being socially rewarded for that. I, I just, you know, I, I always want to make the work I want to see and the work I wanted to see was work that I was not ideally set up to make. Mm -hmm. So it's, I'm, I'm so excited for, for what uh, Kate and Shanika and Stevie are going to do with it now. Yeah. It's interesting that, that, because I think it's really easy to look back at your past and say, I really need to go back in time and shake myself um, for <laughs> what I was doing at the time when chances are what you were doing was a product of what you'd experienced. Absolutely. And shame on, our institutions who up until that point were mostly producing us and showing us plays and Shakespeare, especially with a bunch of white people in it and the occasional person of color and mm -hmm. certainly not playing with gender unless the bard told us we could. Um, yeah. And yet the, where you're at now with it is sort of like a way to look back and say, this is how far I've come. That was a journey and I'm more happy with where I'm at now. Yeah. And I think I, you know, I had to start where I started, um, but I'm that the last show I did with Dauntless, I, I really couldn't have been happier with it as a mm -hmm. way to to sort of tie a bow on it and go, this is for now the end of my journey with this playwright. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I think we that, that production of All's Well That Ends Well, um, uh, 
you know, subverted everything I wanted it to subvert and, and, you know, celebrated everything I wanted it to celebrate and frankly made grumpy all the people I like making grumpy. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I I won't name any names, but there's, Mm -hmm. there's always, you know, you can always look at, at a piece of, uh, at someone who doesn't like your work and go like, that is, I am so glad you don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because you didn't make it for them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, I know the, the, the people I was making that for, uh, found it and, and I think it clicked and, you know, um, and it's, it's, it feels weird to have, to have Shakespeare so hard for so long. I mean, one of, one of my tattoos is, is a Shakespeare tattoo. Um, and, uh, and it's not a tattoo I regret because it stands for something I, I, you know, really loved, yeah. really do love still. I mean, I, I think they're good plays and I like them, but I, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have believed that I would find a time when I, when I wasn't thinking about the next Shakespeare I would direct when I, when I, you know, when I wouldn't, necessarily care if I do another Shakespeare. And I, I feel that way now. It's just, I feel mm. like I, like I did what I wanted to do with that. And, and for the time being, I'm, I'm good, you know, <laughs> before, more we about leave, other stuff. before we leave Shakespeare entirely and talk about the other stuff. Um, I'm yeah. curious if there was a, uh, was there a Shakespeare that was the one that stuck with you? Like, I remember the first Shakespeare that I saw. It was a, uh, it was uh, uh, as you like it, and it was a Stratford Ontario, a Stratford production that was on CBC. Okay, and I must have been like twelve, and that has that stuck with me. So that um, if ever anybody says, "So do you have a, a favorite Shakespeare play?" It's always going to be that one. Hmm. Because I I connected with it, I was like, oh, this shit is funny, you know that sort of thing. Right. Or it made sense and all of this stuff, and and so I connected with it. Um, is there a play of Shakespeare's that you saw or experienced that stuck with you? Is there a particular one? Uh, yeah, there. Uh, yes, and it, it's there. There were there were two shows at the Globe Theater, um, which is. <laughs> you know, for a mm. while was where the most traditional Shakespeare happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, the, in, 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 in the space of, I guess they were a year apart. Um, Emma Rice's production of a Midsummer Night's Dream, which was so spicy that, uh, she didn't work at the globe after that. <laughs> um, it really, it cracked the play wide open. It was the hardest I've ever seen an audience laugh at that play. It is, it is the only time, you know, I'm sure I've seen more Midsummer Night's Dreams than I've had hot dinners. I've done the play like five times. Uh, but this was the only time that it ever, that I had ever been like moved to, to big feelings and tears by it. And it was so funny and so weird and so queer. And so just, it was it, like, it got the play's heart and all of the joy that, that that play is about in a way that was visceral. Hmm. And then the year after that, uh, my partner and I went to see um, 
oh God, I'm blanking on the uh, the director's name, but she also played the lead. It's a production of Richard II in the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse, which mm-hmm. is the uh, the tiny little um, candlelit theater yes, yes. Um, that's attached onto the globe. Um, it's a production of Richard II, uh, a, uh, which is a play fundamentally about uh, transfer of power right willing and coerced and hereditary and it's just it's a play about how power gets handed off across you know across time and and space um and this production was cast entirely with women of color and Hmm. uh and it was uh it was it was extraordinary to see uh actors who who just aren't getting cast in those big meaty roles. The Duke of York, for example, is a very, is a major role in Richard the second. Um, and the actor who played the, the Duke of York, um, you know, looking at her bio, uh, she, she mostly played uh, doctors and professors on, on serial TV. And mm-hmm. uh, here she is crushing the Duke of York in, in the most, like a, Richard the second is one of my favorite play is certainly one of my favorite Shakespeare's and York is my favorite character in it. Mm. And I've never seen a performance of that role like that one. And, and Mm. every role did that. Mm. Um, And then you look around uh, the, the space that's sort of this horseshoe of a theater, um, this rectangular shape. And um, all around this, this rectangular pit are, um, are canvases hanging um, with, with portraits Mm. of women on them. And, uh, uh, that look like they're from different time periods and different parts of the world. And, um, and then I found out at intermission reading the program that uh, every actor in the cast brought a, uh, brought an image of, uh, of an ancestor of theirs. um, And that those were the things. So we're doing a play about transfer of power by people to whom performed by people, to whom power is not generally transferred uh, in a large scale way, um, you know, surrounded by portraits of women who couldn't, who, who, you know, centuries before wouldn't have pictured this happening at all. Right. And, uh, oh boy, (laughs) it was a ride. I bet. I bet. Um, Having, left Dauntless behind and sort of like seeing that production of All's Well That Ends Well as being um, sort of your last Shakespeare, mm-hmm. at least for, for now. For I mean, the foreseeable knows, future. For the foreseeable future. Um, what kind of theater do you see yourself making in the future? Outside, you know, of, outside of the Boundless Library, when you when theaters finally reopen and we're able to, to be in this space with other actors and with other audience members, what do you see? How do you see? What kind of theater do you see yourself making? I'm still sort of waiting for that to jump out at me, if that makes sense. And I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've been, I've been reading and I've been, you know, something I think about a lot. Certainly I am, Mm. I am far more excited to go to theater as audience right Mm. now than I am Mm. to make, to make theater. Um, And I'm not sure I'm not sure why that is, but I'm, that's, that's sort of where I'm at. Uh, the, the thing that I had started doing before the pandemic was, 
training to work as a theatrical intimacy director. And, uh, Mm. and that really, when I, when I met, um, Tonya Cena, who was sort of, who's sort of my main mentor, when I met Mm. her, I guess, God, six years ago now, I, I left that workshop with a really clear sense of, of, oh, I feel drawn to this. Like I've not felt drawn to maybe anything ever. So, so I think that's going to be, and that's, that's work that's obviously been totally on hold because uh, that's, Mm. you know, zoom theater doesn't really have much use for an intimacy director. Although I have, I I should say, I have seen uh, Leslie McBay did some really cool intimacy work for a zoom uh, play Mm. a while ago, the name of which is escaping me, but uh, it's, it can, it has and can be done, but it's all, that's obviously the exception rather than the rule. Um, I am, I am really excited to continue to uh, pursue that work mm. um, because it's, because it fires me up like, uh, like nothing else has in a long time. Mm. Um, it's, and, and I think particularly coming out of this, uh, this pandemic thing, we're going to have to really rethink in the rehearsal room, our relationship with proximity, with touch, mm. right. With all, with, with, with just all of the, the things that we took for granted. Um, I think everything's going to feel a little weird and uh, where <laughs> there's, there's uh, an organization called theatrical intimacy education that has a slogan that's, we make it less weird. And uh, there's going to be, so much weird when we come back to, you know, as we come back to working in person and I'm, I'm really excited for, for all of the other parts of the intimacy directing job, but, but more than anything, I'm really excited to learn this new dimension of it. That's just going to be, how do we relearn how to share space after, you know, after what is a substantial trauma? Dude, that's like one of the things that, that, like I think how wonderful it will be to be in a theater in a rehearsal hall once again. And then in, in the next breath, I'm like, am I ready for that? Yeah. <laughs> like, how do I get past? Cause we've spent like, we will have spent like over two years avoiding proximity. Yep. And there's no way that we can just suddenly unlearn that. No, I mean, it's, it's like any other, it's like any other trauma, right? Mm. It, it's, it, it's, it's just going to take some time to, to work through. Um, and it's going to take some, some work, you know, some intentional, thoughtful work to work through. And with the caveat that, you know, I am not, uh, and your intimacy director is not a mental health professional and, right. we, you know, we are not your therapist. Um, though we do, we do have mental health first aid training. And a lot of that is just about, you know, tips and tricks for navigating trauma, right? For yeah. figuring out like when something in your body goes, ah, no, how do you sit with that? How, what do you do with that? How do you understand that impulse better to decide whether or not to follow it? Um, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I think the, the, again, just like I was saying before caretaking right yeah caretaking is and and empathy and compassion um are are going to be a key piece of uh of coming back to making live theater and uh 
and that caretaking piece, that emotional labor work is, uh, is the thing in theater. I think that fires me up the most where I am right now. I kind of think that any, any theater production that's bringing people back into the room should on the first day have an intimacy director present and take everybody through exercises in how we exist in the room. How do we relearn how to casually touch someone on the shoulder or shake yeah. hands or or hug? How do we how do we get past our two years or more of of avoiding people and make this like so that we can do this together so that it doesn't look awkward on stage? Like and so that yeah. we don't go through anxiety when we have to do it in a scene. I think that would be a really wise thing for any production to do. Yeah, I, you know, from a place of bias that I'll cop to, also think everybody should hire an emergency <laughs> director. Um, but, but particularly, so here's the thing. Before the pandemic, before anybody had heard the word COVID-19 and we were all just cheerily making theater, there were people in the room, in every rehearsal room, who, who had a difficult relationship with something you were doing with proximity, yeah. with touch, with intimacy, mm -hmm. choreography, you name it, right? Um, the difference is now that, that that playing field has leveled and and where before the challenge was, you know, learn everybody's needs and 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 be sensitive and thoughtful and and careful in in accommodating everybody's needs around proximity and touch and so on. Um, everybody's it, part of that was, was making sure that people who, who had more challenges around that content were accommodated. Well, now everyone has more challenges mm -hmm, around that mm -hmm. content. You know, it's, it's the same way that um, a number of, uh, of friends of mine with, with disabilities have, you know, have been able to work from home in the last 18 months in a way that was, you know, that, that wasn't possible before the pandemic, but as more work from home has become available, they've just been able to do more mm -hmm. thereby revealing that we could have been accommodating mm -hmm. those people and their needs the whole damn time. Yes. And I think, um, so in the same way that the lesson for that is workplaces can think about, you know, disability accommodations better <laughs> and, and be thoughtful about people's needs and, and, you know, particularly when those needs don't impact their ability to do the job, the arbitrary hours, the arbitrary work location can't, you know, can just, we could just learn what we're supposed to learn from that and, and be better. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I think uh, this is a chance, and, and I say chance like it's optional, but I don't think it's going to be optional. Everybody's going to learn what it feels like to be... Uh, to have a, a, a traumatized relationship with touch in the rehearsal mm. room. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Everybody is going to, is going to learn what some people uh, knew and were dealing with the whole time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, I think it's important that, that, that companies are considering that now as they're making plans to go back into the rehearsal room, they should be also thinking about, how the hell do we make people comfortable in the rehearsal room? Yeah. Um, there's a production of Passover um, on, uh, on Broadway right now um, that uh, 
uh, Anne James, who's a, an intimacy director in the U.S., uh, she is working on as as intimacy director. Passover is a play that, on the surface, doesn't have any sexual or romantic intimacy to it, um, but it sure has a lot of vulnerability. It sure asks the actors to, you know, to to tackle some content that is that is going to be traumatic in a personal way just by virtue of the skin they live in. Yeah. Um, and so Anne's work on that production as intimacy director has been facilitating vulnerability and caretaking and sort of broadening the, the scope of what intimacy direction me- can mean. I am really curious about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Just to bring things back around to the Boundless Library, um, where can we find the Boundless Library? Yeah, so um, on the interwebs um, at uh, www.theboundlesslibrary.com, the the landing page will ask you to uh, sign up and you get to go through a fun little cardholder application, at which point you... um, can you may get start getting emails from uh, from someone named Alice, who's uh, sort of uh, uh, she she's in the library and she'll mm. you know she's learning to understand it herself. Mm-hmm. Um, we are we are on the social medias. Uh, we're going to be launching a TikTok uh, very soon. Uh, the Boundless Library is the the tag for that as well, uh, and I con- I can confidently say that it's going to be hilarious. Um, and we're going to be launching a Kickstarter on uh, October 18th for our next few stories, which will be a chance to both uh, sort of get a first look at some of our next uh, our next stories, but also uh, get some sweet deals on mm. uh, on the subscription. Um, That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I think it'll be That's cool, awesome. and there'll be some neat exclusive swag. Um, the the swag we made the last time we we did this stuff you know, difficulties of getting stuff made during a pandemic aside is so cool. Like this, I, I have a, uh, a, a metal library card in my wallet. Uh, nice. that's one of the bits of, of nonsense we made. Um, you know, I, there's just, there's going to be some cool stuff to be had. So, uh, the Kickstarter is another thing to keep an eye on. Uh, nice. and then there's, there's one other place. We made a podcast called borrowings tales of, and from the boundless library. You can find it on all the things that you get podcasts on, uh, you know, when you've run out of stage worthy episodes to listen to. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, about the librarians of the boundless library and their weird, weird jobs. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So Scott, last of all, um, for the entire 18 months, 19 months, whatever it's been now. Um, one of the last questions I ask is about joy. Um, (laughs) because I feel that, that, you know, we've all had those moments when, who you really feel like we need to be reminded of joy. Oh boy. Um, I think it's great to ask other people about what's giving them joy. So Scott, what's been giving you joy? What has been giving me joy? Uh, you know, the, a, a number of things, uh, the thing that has really, the thing that jumps to the top of the list for me is that, uh, and this has nothing to do with, with theater or, or arts work or any of that. Um, but uh, my partner is a high school teacher. Mm. And uh, so her past year has looked like what you think it's looked like. And uh, she's back at school this week, um, you know, teaching in masks with all kinds of all kinds of rules around uh, keeping everything and everybody safe. Mm-hmm. And the thing that has brought me, I think, the most joy 
has been that this set of circumstances has uh, has pushed me to step up the way in which I show up uh, for her most immediately, because when she's teaching, you know, out of the desk in our bedroom, like I'm, I'm her pit crew. Mm-hmm. Um, but just in general, it has, it has pushed me to, um, to be a better support to people around me to, you know, to, to show up when people need an extra set of hands or to, you know, get on my bike when somebody needs something delivered and they can't get out of the house. Um, and, uh, and the fact that this has pushed me towards just, uh, yeah, showing up for the people around me, uh, in, in, in new ways is, is, is the top of my list for things that bring me joy. It, that has really been feeding me. Thank you, Scott. And, and thanks for, for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah. Thank you, Phil. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stage Worthy. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the podcast. You can do that by making a donation to the virtual tip jar. You'll find a link to that in the show notes, which you can find on the website or on your podcast app. Or you can buy some merch such as T-shirts, mugs, stickers, and more at the online store. Shop.stageworthyproductions.com All your purchases and tip jar donations go towards Stageworthy and help me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theatre. And if you can't donate or buy from this store, please consider rating and reviewing the show. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a review right in the podcast app. And if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, you can still review the show by going to podchaser.com, searching for Stageworthy, and rating the podcast there. Thanks for listening, and thank you for your support. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all past episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy.